After the shooting in Orlando and mass shootings in the past, there is intense focus on mental illness and questions on whether mental illness can be linked to mass shootings. But could studies around mental illness be linked to research around another crisis in this country? Addiction? Dr. David A. Kessler served as the commissioner of the FDA under George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, and he has closely examined issues of drug and food addiction. His latest book, his latest book is Capture, Unraveling the Mystery of Mental Suffering. For today's Please Explain, we are talking about the triggers that can lead to addiction and depression, and if those same triggers can be linked to violence. And for this Please Explain, we want to hear from you. So if you have a question or comment about the triggers that can lead to addiction or mental illness, or just want to share your story, please give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can leave a comment on our show page or write to us on Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. David, what's the connection between your first book, which was on food and tobacco, and this new research on capture? I became very interested in first, and the question is, why do I uh, pick up a cigarette and then throughout the course of my life, if I'm addicted, smoke 780,000 more? Or why does that chocolate chip cookie have such power over me? There is a neural process. It's in all of us, and it's the way we pay attention our attention can get seized by things that are salient, that have meaning, and that seizure of our attention can affect how we feel either positively or negatively. We, we can be captured by things that are positive or things that are negative. I could be uh, captured by tobacco. I can be captured by food. I could be captured about myself, about I'm a failure, I have self-doubt, or I can be captured by an object outside, and that can create enormous rage. So in terms of capture, you mean that you know, cigarettes, they, they're not only addictive because of nicotine. There could be something else going on. Well, the nicotine can change how I feel. It can calm me down. It could stimulate me. And the way addiction works is that things that are associated with things that can change how I feel, any cue then becomes salient. Let's take the case of, you know, food. I mean, in the San I, li- Francisco I like this airport, I like this chocolate chip cookie thing. That's a, that's a great example. Right. Yeah. So I'm walking down a street, right? And all of a sudden I have thoughts about chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. You have to think where did that where did those thoughts come from? I mean, the fact was 6 months earlier I had been in that street and I had gone into some store and I had bought that chocolate chip cookie. So just the street becomes a cue. And that cue then stimulates me, that place, that time, to uh, it cues me. Uh, and there's, there are thoughts of wanting. You know, then, uh, so you have the whole process of learning and wanting that's part of our neural processes. How would this work with, say, smoking then? It, it would be the same thing where, for example... Every day at lunch, is is there a cue that you go, oh, I, I go to the street and I smoke a cigarette because that's what I do and that's what the street represents to me? Is that is that how that works, kind of? We used to, th- we used to think that it was the drop in blood nicotine that would stimulate uh, me to 
pick up the next cigarette. But in fact, uh, there are certain cues. It could be the time of day. Uh, it could be uh, being tense. Uh, it could be irritable. Uh, and the, most, the most effective reinforces I mean, are things that can change how I feel. So if something can make me feel better, right, that's going to capture my attention most. Smoking rates have dropped dramatically in the past 20 years in this country. Why has this campaign to get Americans to smoke less been so successful? Because we changed the valence of the cigarette. What I mean was, you know, certainly in my parents' and grandparents' generation, you know, that cigarette was viewed as my friend. It could make me feel better. It was associated with, you know, independence or, or, or sex or, or glamour. What did we do? We... In fact, we demonized, we changed the valence. I mean, there was a critical perceptual shift in this country. That cigarette is no longer my friend. That cigarette is, in fact, a deadly addictive product. So it used to be viewed as positive. What happens with things that are positive? I'll approach it. If we change the valence, if we change how we perceive it, what's going to happen if it's negative? I'm going uh, to avoid it. I'm Hassan Minaj, and today for Leonard Lopate. You're listening to WNYC and WNYC.org, and I'm speaking to David Kessler, former FDA commissioner and author of the book Capture. David, you, you know, we talk about the way sort of those products, specifically, say, cigarettes are, are branded. Do you think the same thing can be assigned to other things people are addicted to, especially other epidemics in this country, like the opiate and heroin epidemics? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's no doubt um, that the reason people take drugs is because they can change uh, how uh, they feel. Uh, and then once they start feeling bad, uh, those thoughts of wanting, those urges uh, kick in, and that's what sustains this feedback loop. But it's beyond just smoking and eating. I mean, take, I mean, and this is, this really was what interested me because I thought it was, I, I understood addiction when it came to smoking. I began to you know, study it with regard to food. But what about a re- other re- effective uh, conditions? What about depression, for example? Depression involves a continual focus on negative thoughts, experiences, memories, and feelings to the uh, exclusion of all else. As a person narrows his or its his or her attention focusing on the most negative stimuli, you know, the, the mind just continues that, that attention on the negative takes precedence over all else. So really it's like a have positive thoughts and you'll feel happier? It really it, well, it boils down to that sort of general idea? But there's an automaticity to it, right? I mean, these things happen. I get captured... Um, in a quiet way. I get captured even uh, before I consciously uh, aware, I'm aware of it. So it's not something uh, you can just will. It's not just be happy. It's easy to say that, right? But my, I have to, uh, there have to be things that are happy that attracts me that are going to make me uh, feel better, things that I'm going to want. And, and again, my nervous system is going to have to be primed to those things because some of it's under conscious control, but some of it is happening automatically. Another controversial point you raised in the book uh, was that food could be addictive. When did you first get the idea that people could be addicted to food? You know, what is addiction? I mean, addiction really is, I know it sounds like a scientific term, but it's cue-induced wanting. 
right? It's conditioned and, and driven behavior. You know, th- there was, you know, when I, that, I see that chocolate chip cookie, I can smell it. I can, uh, I see those chunks. I, uh, it's, it's warm, it, it, it's hot. And of all things, that's what captures my attention. Right? And I have this sense, uh, this urge, and my hand reaches out before I even consciously decide to go reach for it. So there's an automaticity. Okay, I got it. But I got to ask this. this, and I don't know if this is if this is just an American thing, or is food addiction prevalent around the world? We can uh, become uh, captured by many things, and that's the most interesting part of uh, capture. Uh, things, um, different things can capture uh, different people. So for some people, uh, it'll be food. Some people, uh, it'll be smoking. Uh, it depends a lot right. on, as you see uh, in tobacco, we change how we as a society view it. So tobacco, uh, you know, doesn't capture most of our attention today, but other things do. But the important part is that these neural processes happen in all of us. What we get captured by may differ, but I think no matter where one is in the world, I mean, capture these neural mechanisms right. because they evolved to make us su- survive, uh, allowed us to, you know, go find food uh, to reproduce. That's the basis, I mean, of uh, our survival. That's in all of us, regardless of what country we're in. Let's take a call. Walter from Mendham, New Jersey. Hi, you are on the air. Hi, how are you, Leonard? Uh, I'm Hassan, but oh, thank you. Hassan, I'm but, sorry. But, but thank I, you. Uh, no, no, it's okay. Show, but you're in, I guess. I'm okay. so honored that I sound like Leonard. Wow, that makes me feel so good. This um, issue about uh, depression and addiction is very personal to me. Um, I'm a, uh, a gay man, um, bipolar type 2. I've been in psychotherapy for the better part of 18 years. And uh, and medicated, uh, you know, lightly. Um, to me, uh, the whole essence of addiction is is really symptom symptomatic of something that we have difficult dealing with. And I, I believe it's anger. I believe that what I have learned in my life, uh, given the amount of anger that I have uh, as a gay man, and now especially after Orlando is that there's two ways to deal with anger. We can either be constructive with it, or we can either be destructive with it. And what I've learned is to take this energy, this really nuclear type of energy, this anger, that I, all human beings feel, and feel it, but then learn to use that energy in a constructive way rather than a destructive way. So to me, all addiction is simply a self-directed, self-destructive reaction to anger. And just as a final point, to me, anger is, is a two-sided coin. Fear is the other side of anger. And that's about it. I, I just think that for my life, for my therapy, uh, the anger that I feel is always attended to by a solution. What am I going to do with this anger? And what is, and what is the constructive thing to do? Um, and when I have that built in as a method of thinking, 
I'm always looking for the constructive, non-self-destructive way. That's, that's my statement. Thanks, Walter. Uh, David, do you feel, you know, kind of to build on what Walter said, is there a way you can transmute those addictions and transmute them into something sort of positive or constructive? What, you know, is there a way you can take that and, 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 and channel it into something constructive? Walter was incredibly articulate. The fact is, this neural process, this process of capture, you know, rewiring is possible, the rewiring of our neural circuits, because capture applies to positive experiences as well as negative experiences. You know, what are those positive experiences? I mean, they, they can capture us. It can be religious connection. It could be spiritual transcendence. It could be charitable acts. It could be athletic pursuits. Those are all forms of capture. The most important secret about capture is that one of the most effective ways to be, re- to be re- released from being captured is to find something that is more meaningful. The answer, I think, is to replace one form of negative capture with a positive one. On today's Please Explain, we're speaking about the mental functions that make some people prone to addiction, abuse, and violence. Our guest is David Kessler, who was the FDA commissioner under Presidents H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. His latest book is Capture, Unraveling the Mystery of Mental Suffering. It's published by Harper Wave. We'll have more after a break, and we'll be taking more calls. That number is 212-433-9692. I'm Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minaj, in today for Leonard Lopate. This is WNYC and WNYC.org. I'm Hassan Minaj, in today for Leonard Lopate. We are talking to David Kessler, specifically about addiction and capture. Uh, David, in the book, you focus on individual stories, oftentimes explaining explaining and exploring years of a person's life. Why did you want to discuss capture this way instead of discussing the scientific studies behind capture and addiction? Because I wanted people to experience what capture is like. There are a hundred pages of footnotes, many filled with the science, uh, but for me, the most important thing was to be able to con- connect the dots. Mm. So to, to be able to show um, what depression, what captures in depression, those negative stimuli, what captures in anxiety, right? It could be going over a bridge or a ledge, the fear of being a fraud. What captures in the eating disorders, you know, the fear of getting fat or the control that comes with slicing one apple into 80 pieces and eat, eating only one piece every hour, you know, the what captures in trauma, the harm that was done to us, the, the feeling of being abandoned. In hypochondria, it's a, it's a certain stimulus, I mean, a bodily sensation that we think that is going to pretend something uh, that uh, is bad. So I wanted to show a range of conditions and connect the dots and show capture. You can go uh, into the footnotes and read all about the neural circuitry um, that stimulate um, the dopaminergic uh, uh, neurotransmitters. It's all there. But I wanted the reader uh, to sense it. I wanted to show it, not just to lecture about it. I found the John Belushi story to be really, really interesting. Um, 
you know, you, you talk about authors and poets and, and, and you know, obviously a, a, a comedian and, and John Belushi. And one of his low points in terms of addiction was when he was on set of Animal House. And do you think that character, which was sort of this fun, hard partying guy, could have influenced his own addiction? Oh, no doubt. Um, what was interesting, uh, if you listen uh, to uh, John's wife, it was an endless number of things that could cue uh, John. When he was uh, getting ready um, for a scene, uh, he felt he needed uh, something uh, to be great. If he didn't get into a scene on Saturday Night Live, he needed something uh, to feel better. But you know, there was something uh, that he said um, that I found very poignant was, I don't know why I do this. You know, and it's not. I'm, I'm sorry. Oh no, no, no. You know, what's interesting for me as a performer, I, I, I found this to be kind of scary. I've seen so many comedians go down this really, really dark uh, hole. Really great comedians that could have even elevated to and soared to even greater heights, but uh, addiction to alcohol or, or drugs or other things. Uh, but to me, one of the things that I sort of did to put it in perspective was I was like uh, I don't know if there's anything greater than the rush of getting like the laugh or connection from the audience was I mean you know John was such a legend did you ever feel did he ever feel like was it a thing where he felt like he needed it to be that funny and um, certainly and and then what happens in that moment after when there's no one around and there's no laughter and there's no reinforcement. Fill the void, fill the void, fill the void. So you constantly need um, uh, to to feel better. To, to if if that's where uh, that external uh, reinforcement is what you need, and then it's not there constantly because it can't be right. there yeah. all the time, right? What do you put in the void? What are you constantly chasing? What what's going to make you feel better? And that's why drugs become so salient because I mean they they can take the place. And at least for him, of that laughter, of that attention. Sean from New Jersey is a recovering addict and called in to say that chemicals are a tool that are used to manipulate addiction. Uh, let's go to another caller. Um, Thomas from the Bronx, you're on the air. Hi there, Hassan, David. Very interesting topic, really enjoying the conversation. Uh, I wanted to inquire as to uh, what your research might have shown about uh, disruption and routines as they relate to capture. In my experience, uh, I am an Army vet, and I was deployed to Iraq for about 14 months. And during that time, uh, I had already been a 14-pack-year smoker. Uh, and <clears throat> and I found that while I thought that the stress of the situation would increase my smoking, uh, disruption in routine uh, actually contributed to me smoking less, and it was one of the longest periods that I went without smoking before I permanently quit about three years ago. What's going on is that when you change your environment, you're taking away uh, the cues um, that may stimulate you uh, to want a cigarette uh, I mean, or to eat. Uh, you know, the problem in with capture is there are certain conditions that you can't just change the environment. And that's why depression is so powerful, because if the object of capture 
I mean, is my own self, my self-doubt, my self-fears, the fact that I'm a failure. I can't escape that because I'm always around myself. So the environment is absolutely key, and it's great to be able to change that environment. I'm going to reduce the number of cues, right? But there are certain conditions. Right, so, David, that, are, you, are you saying that the stress of Iraq maybe helped him smoke less? No, there may be other things that uh, the, the cues, I mean, that he was used to, right, just right. weren't there. The routine got disrupted. Right. Um, so the things that triggered, other things became more important. Trying to survive in Iraq, you know, that roadside bomb captured my attention much more, right, than um, the, the, the cigarette. You write a lot about David Foster Wallace in this book. Why did he interest you? You know, Wallace, I think, uh, you know, it's the great thing about the humanist tradition, um, uh, even over the sciences, because David, I think, was able to express what was going on uh, in his brain probably better than any fMRI image. You know, from an early age, David wanted to be exempt from the ordinary. He wanted to excel, you know, first as a student and then as a writer. He wanted to be able uh, to be read in a hundred years, and he wanted others to recognize his genius. But what he talked about, right, you know, is if he earned an A plus or received critical acclaim, he the fact that he grew uneasy and then despairing. He wanted to be this good person, but he suspected that something there was something crooked about the way in which. He'd achieve success, something false in himself. And he coined this, the fraudulent paradox. You know, and any number of things could threaten his sense of credibility. If he got critical praise or academic success or romantic attention, someone laughing at his jokes, I mean, he interpreted those as, you know, I just fooled people. You know, so his life became very much a lonely performance. Don't they call that imposter syndrome? Like uh, you're afraid that you'll be outed as an imposter. Uh, um, uh, exactly, and you know, and there's there's a part of that I think in most of us. Yeah. Right. We we all have that feel, but you know, but for most of us, we're able to shift our attention away from that and go on. You know, but David could not. You know what he wrote. You know, he wrote. Let me just quote. He, he did. You know, he perceives any. Uh, he he could not perceive anything outside of this universal pain. Everything uh, is part of the problem. So, so what depression is, right, is this narrowing of attention, this focusing on only the most negative stimuli. And in essence, the, the mind almost devours itself. I mean, social media must make things even worse if you see that negative and it just sort of rolls in, right? Uh, it, it can have an enormous effect. And what happens when I can't shake that? Right? What happens if um, you know that starts uh, grabbing my attention? Why do we? Why am I sitting here checking my BlackBerry? I mean, every uh, ten seconds. I mean, you know, as a comedian, I mean, what do you do to grab someone's attention? I mean, on right? stage, isn't that what yeah. comedy is about? Yeah, sure. You tell a joke, or you you try to make a connection with the audience. Um, and and what's 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 crazy is now because of social media and technology what was once a democratic way to 
uh, talk to an audience, you would get collective laughs. Now, because of Twitter and at replies and social media, it is as a specific criticism. And uh, if, if you're being trolled and it could be it can be like really like hurtful, you know, and, 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 and it happens for even outside of the stage. You could even post an article of something you're passionate about and people can immediately start commenting and going, I disagree with you and this and this. It's, it could it be really, really tough. And, you know, how do you, you know, can you shake that? I mean, most of us have the ability to to go on, right? You 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 know you you let it go. Um, you make light of it, um, and you go on to the next thing. But you know, I think we all have this sense of how things reverberate, how they how they stick. Sure. What happens? What happens if I can't shake it, right? And I think I think the most important thing is that what I what I try to do was to pull back the curtain on depression and other afflictions, you know, and help us avoid, you know, these pathways to psychic pain. Can we talk about what you talk about in the book, self-medicating? What did you mean by self-medicating in regards to the case study between addiction and mental illness? You know, self-medication is I'm captured by something that makes me feel bad. You know, I'm, I'm, I am looking at those as your example, you know, that, that social media, that feedback, those reviews, what people are saying, I feel bad, right? So what's going to happen? The natural uh, result is I, I'm going to try to feel better. So I'm going to try to change uh, what, uh, how I feel. And then I'm going to be captured by uh, something else that's going to make me feel better. I mean, that's why we go to drugs, and uh, that's why uh, we go uh, to smoking, because they can give us this transient sense that they make us feel better, but in the long run, they really make us feel uh, worse. I'm Hassan Minaj, and today for Leonard Lopate. You're listening to WNYC and WNYC.org, and I'm speaking to David Kessler, former FDA commissioner and author of the book Capture. David, many people might have a misconception about medication and mental illness. They may think that if you have a mental illness and let's say you take the right medication, your symptoms go away and you start to, you know, act normally. But then if you stop taking the medication, the symptoms come back. Is that really how it works? I don't think so. I mean, two points is on. One, most medicines certainly um, whether it's depression or anxiety, really don't change the underlying cause of what's making me feel bad. They can dampen. They could put a Band-Aid. They could lower my emotional reactivity, right? But they're not going to get to the underlying cause. They can give me time, right, to be able to try to fix the problem, to get help, to get mental uh, health uh, resources. But, but here's the most important thing that I care about, right? And we need to stop thinking about mental illness as people being broken. Look, we are all vulnerable to capture. Certainly there's a continuum. And we're all going to be captured by different things. Sometimes it's going to lead to great creativity, uh, a great accomplishment. Sometimes it can lead to great devastation uh, and self-harm. We're all vulnerable. But we need to stop thinking about mental illness as this mystery, as something that we can't understand. 
a lot of this starts with what we pay attention to, what captures our, our attention, what makes us uh, feel a certain way. And once we can, we understand that there, there is a neurological basis, right? But they were all vulnerable to varying extents. I think that's a different way of looking at mental illness. When you profile mass shooters in this country, what did they have in common? What captured them? Um, it, it, it's very interesting because, you know, we talked about, you know, how I could be captured by this, the, the self, about my self-doubt, uh, you know, my self-failure. You know, but what happens uh, when a, uh, a person uh, becomes captured by an object that is external? When a person becomes captured, you know, by something that leads to an abiding sense of rage? You know, we used to think that psychopathy... You know, it's traditionally been understood as a lack of uh, conscience, an absence of anxiety or guilt or, or a feeling, you know, they just don't feel empathy. But in fact, if you look at mass shooters, you, you, you look at what's going on in their heads. I mean, Eric Harris, you know, um, who, um, along with uh, uh, Dylan Klebold, uh, was responsible for the mass murders uh, in Columbine. When you read his journals, it's very telling. Um, he writes, uh, everyone is always making fun of me. David, I'm sorry, we'll have to I look. David, I'm sorry, we'll have to end it there. I've been speaking with David Kessler, who was the FDA commissioner for 20 years, and he's the author of Capture, Unraveling the Mystery of Mental Suffering, published by Harper Wave. David, thank you so much.